welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. Remember, you can always catch us every week right here, not only on our podcast, on radio, and now on our YouTube channel. Or if you ever miss an episode, just go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Jason, who are we speaking with this week? We are speaking with Professor Zena Hitz. She's a tuner at St. John's College and author of the very successful and popular book, Lost in Thought. We'll be talking with her about the state of education, the goals of education for true human flourishing and the importance of education for free citizens in a democracy, and then maybe make some connections between uh, education and learning and the contemplative life. Nice. It really sounds kind of fascinating, that idea that you could really just learn for the sake of learning and not just having to learn for the task at hand. Uh, It'll be a great conversation. I can't wait to hear what she has to say. A quick reminder that everyone who's watching and listening can always send us their discussion ideas. Send me an email. The address is show at mncatholic.org. Or you could leave us a comment on our YouTube channel, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I will be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I'm now joined in the Bridge Builder by Professor Zena Hitz. Professor Zena Hitz is a tutor at St. John's College and the author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. She writes and speaks on the human need to learn for its own sake and what it means for educational institutions to take that need seriously. She studied at St. John's College, Cambridge University, the University of Chicago, and Princeton before teaching philosophy at McGill and Auburn. She spent three years living and working in the Madonna House Apostolate and has taught in prison programs and to other non-traditional students. When she's not teaching or speaking, she spends time thinking about topics like the moral decline and fall of individuals and communities as depicted in stories from Genesis to the Godfather, one of my favorites. Professor Zena Hitz, it's great to speak with you today. Welcome to the Bridge Builder. Thanks so much, Jason. It's great to be here. Problems in public education have been exposed. Homeschooling is exploding. Catholic schools and archdiocese here in the Twin Cities are near capacity. What's going on in the education system today? Are people waking up to some problems or are they just choosing a better path? What do you what do you see as the the issue in public education today? Well, um, so I, my work is mainly in higher education, so I'm reporting a bit as a, a concerned citizen mm-hmm. on K through 12. But from what I've seen, which seems to be what everyone is seeing, when um, school went online last year, parents suddenly saw what was really going on in their classrooms, and they didn't like what they saw. Now, I've been following, I follow education very closely because I'm an educator and because I care about it. So I wasn't surprised to see that people weren't satisfied. I think a lot of what's going on is a certain kind of professionalization of education, which has led to a kind of authoritarianism. So you have uh, education programs taught by, trained by people trained in the same programs. They design from the top down with a kind of managerial approach what they think outcomes ought to be, what they think uh, various educational goals ought to be. They develop very fine-tuned means to those things. And somehow, in the mix of all of that, you lose what's basic, which is education is person-to-person. 
It's uh, based on fundamental questions. We have a natural desire for it. You don't need to instill a certain kind of effect in students. You need to give them space for their natural desire to learn to grow. So that's an approach that you see in, uh, it's quite old Montessori programs, which I know have been taken up in a lot of Catholic communities. But you also see in a place like St. John's where I teach, we assume our students want to learn, that they're driven by fundamental questions. We give them the space to do that and the freedom to do that. And that's, that's not management, that's more like something more like gardening. It's a collaborative process between the student and the teachers and the community. I think that's what everyone wants, honestly. Certainly technical skills are important and practical education is an important thing, no doubt. But at the same time, you teach and it appears you went to school at St. John's College as well, a place that is traditional yet sort of countercultural in how it does education. Say a little bit about the educational model at St. John's and, and why it, the, reading the great books helps people get to those fundamental questions and why that is more reflective of true education in your opinion. Well, let me start with an example from K through 12 and then I'll turn to St. John's. So, uh, you know, when I was a child, when many of us were children, you would read a book, you'd read stories, legends, folk tales, fairy tales that led up to chapter books, led up to novels, and you loved stories. Human beings love stories. And all of your literacy skills, your abilities to read, to write, to think, your vocabulary, all of that comes organically through reading a lot. So that's the sort of organic approach is you give people mm -hmm. the space and the time to read. You recommend some good books to them. The managerial approach is going to say, well, look, we want this and that skill. Um, let's try to get some research that figures out how best to get it. And what you get is homework and programs that are incredibly boring and that suck all of the, the life out of it, out of your learning, that, that sort of make war on your natural desire to learn. So that people that are children that are very intelligent, young people that are very intelligent uh, and who want to learn find school unbearable. Uh, that's not something, a, a consequence you want. So what St. John's has done, we've, we, we were founded in uh, the 30s, our program. It's based on reading books. So we read books from the Western tradition, philosophy, literature, history, political theory. We read also classics of mathematics and science. We look for the fundamental questions in those books. And we treat our students as responsible for their own learning. That is, as driven with, from within by their questions. They go to the books, they bring their own questions to it. And because a great book is such a big, beautiful thing, so complicated and so rich, we never know what's going to happen in our classes. They're the opposite of managerial. You never know what a student is going to come up with when they encounter one of these books. There's a kind of spontaneity and freedom and open-endedness that I think is is really crucial for not just for education being fun and interesting, but for really developing free and independent people who who can think for themselves, who can read something fearlessly, who who can evaluate their sources and evaluate what they're hearing. And uh, it's this is just crucial. I think it really is being lost. What's the pitch that St. John's? Uh, you know, there's a. a a specifically Catholic version of St. John's called Thomas Aquinas College, yes. Wyoming mm -hmm. Catholic College does something very similar. Um, I think there's some cross-pollination amidst all those universities with graduates and things of that sort. But what's the pitch that a, a college like St. John's makes to prospective undergraduates? You don't have an engineering major, you don't have a finance or accounting major, 
um, you can major in uh, uh, molecular biology. So what's the what's the pitch these days with people so very practical minded on these when they're making a big investment like college? I think you have to ask yourself where those practical skills come from. So no one is against, I'm not against, no one at St. John's is against people trying to advance themselves in the world. Mm -hmm. that's, a natural, that's another natural human impulse. And you do sometimes need a specific set of skills to do that. You get the skills again by thinking fundamentally, by looking at what's basic, by going into the roots of your culture, by finding connections with the cultures of others, if, if the Western culture isn't your native culture, by connecting with what's really human so that you get a broad perspective and a broad set of skills that are gonna help you to make it no matter what happens in the world. So I think a lot of us feel now, on the one hand, we feel anxious, we want the skills to succeed, and we don't wanna waste a lot of money and time doing something that seems like a waste, on the other hand, it's a very volatile situation out there. We all know that. Industries come and go. What's really a waste is to spend all that money and resources on a niche career that's going to disappear in 10 years. Then where are you? So we want human beings to be building their own views of the world and even thinking themselves about what kind of work there needs to be done in the world. You don't want the people who control the jobs to control everything. You want jobs to be produced by free people collaborating and thinking about their environment and their community and what's needed and what isn't. And that's what we're trying to cultivate at St. John's as I see it. Um, and as an employer, I can say that the value of a liberal arts major that helps people communicate and think effectively, and of course, good writing is ultimately good thinking. There's, there's certainly a premium on that. And I think a lot of folks are concerned. They look around and they see conformism uh, to social trends or dominant ideologies and the lack of real rigorous thinking by folks in the population, despite the many technical skills that people have and there are deep concerns. So let me, you've alluded to this already, but let's dive a little bit deeper into education for democracy, education for a society of allegedly free citizens. Why is education important in a society uh, or in a political uh, culture or political society that prizes self-government and freedom of its citizens to make decisions about how they're going to order their lives together? Well, I think I, I might just say again what I just said. That is, if we just think about the realm of work, which isn't really just a jest, since most of us work is pretty central to what we do uh, to our lives. Uh, it's, you know, family might be central, God might be central, but work is crucial. We don't, We can't live without it. The way that things have changed over the past 20 years is that, um, you know, money and power have gone into the hands of a few, and they unfortunately are determining what a job is. So when you're looking for job training, you're really looking for a slot in a machine that's been designed by someone else. I think anyone who's looked for a job can feel that way. That is, you're like, well, how do I fit into this massive thing that's out there in the world on which I depend for my livelihood? How do I contribute my thinking and my human capacities? So I think reflecting on the past, reflecting on all of the, the spheres of human endeavor to a certain extent, again, mathematics, science, poetry, any of these things, they give you a sense of what human life is about. They give you a big picture of humanity. It may not be a tight picture, it may be something you're working out over many years, 
but that helps you to understand why your life might matter and what kind of work in the community might really be best for you. And that also helps you to think about your leaders and what they're telling you. If you know the past, if you studied the wisdom of the ancient political theorists, you're less likely to be taken in by someone who's trying to manipulate you. For some reason, this was a, a bit of a cliche when I was growing up, but it, we've lost touch with it. I, I don't hear it as much as I used to. And that's one of the reasons why I became concerned and wanted to, to write on these topics. Oftentimes we hear that the great books are dealing with these fundamental questions. That's really a leisure activity of the few, but you've, you've taken the great books into some non-traditional or surprising places such as prisons. Every few years you see a story in the New York Times about Shakespeare in the inner city or something like this. And story after story, people reading Aristotle in unlikely places, but yet the sort of bias against the great books and the great texts and as though they're only for a privileged few seems to persist. What's going on there? What's been your experience reading the great books in places like prisons? My experience is that these books are great because they touch on something human. If there's a book that's loved because it just makes your community look good, that's not likely to be a great book. So if you think about Homer's Iliad, which is you know, the first time you read it at St. John's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. If you haven't read it or reread it recently, take a look. The Iliad is about a war between the Greeks and the Trojans. Homer is a Greek, and he makes the Trojans look really good, and the Greeks look really bad. Now, that's a great book. That's a book which is looking critically at someone's own historical circumstance and really thinking through what the meaning of that community is. So you're going to get with a book of that's sufficiently wonderful and good and rich and intelligent, you're going to tap into something human. And so it's not just true that people from all walks of life. Now, I think that reason is pretty simple. You, you, you give people their dignity when you read something with them that you like to read yourself. The managerial instinct, which is, oh, well, what would be good for an inmate to read? Well, perhaps this other, this thing that I've imagined is relevant to their lives, that's not respecting their dignity. Even an inmate in the worst circumstances as a human being, they have a capacity to reflect and to think about their own lives and to take responsibility for it and to, and to think about their community and what might be right about it, what might be wrong about it. So you give people their dignity when you, when you read something that's deeply human with them. And that's definitely been my experience. That is people respond to being treated like adults who can think, who have thoughts and questions of their own. So we have students at St. John's these days from all over the world, all over the world, you know, uh, Namibia, parts of Asia, parts of Africa, the Middle East, parts of Central Asia, Mongolia. They love these books. They take mm -hmm. to them in a certain way with more zeal than the Americans do, because I think the educational models in other countries are even more goal-directed than ours are. They see themselves in these books and they ask their questions and that creates bonds of unity between people of different cultures and different backgrounds. And gosh, if there's anything that we're losing these days, it's that, right? That sense of connection between people of different backgrounds and different walks of life, the sense that we all have something in common, that there are things that we all care about. That just seems to me really one of the great gifts of the great books. They can build common bonds and be a bridge builder between people across races and cultures, despite being written by dead white guys. 
Yeah, no, and there's beautiful work that's just, it's just coming into the public eye now, even though it's been going on for years, about the classics in the lives of Black Americans. Mm-hmm. Anika Prather and Angel mm-hmm. Parham are two women who are working on how the Black leaders of the past, Frederick Douglass, W.E.D. Du Bois, Martin Luther King, and even the radicals, Huey Newton and Malcolm X, they were all schooled in the Western classics. They made them their own. They used those books to become who they were, to become free people who were proud of their own heritage. And if we don't understand that, then we're, we're, we're really missing something, not just about the particular Western great books, but about the kind of thing education can do and what it's really meant for. Yeah, Nika Prather is fantastic. She was the commencement speaker at my kid's school, uh, St. Agnes School, this last year. And what oh, she's wonderful. doing is really, really important. So thanks for mentioning her in that great oh, sure. book. She's a good friend. I drop her name whenever I can. Uh, <laughs> we are speaking with Professor Zena Hitz. She is the author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Before we get to that, Zena, what a, say a little bit about your recent lecture, The Five Pillars of Education. It might just be sort of distilling down some of the comments you've already made, but if you could just briefly lay out what you think those pillars are, I think that'd be helpful for our listeners. So uh, the lecture I gave recently, which was a comment on a book by Benedict Ashley called The Way to Wisdom, I suggested there were five main principles that counted for the goals of education. And it's based in fundamental questions, questions about what it means to be a human being or what it means to live in a world like ours. So the fundamental questions of uh, philosophy, history, mathematics, science, literature, it's we're driven by natural passions towards these questions. So the purpose of education should be to let those natural passions develop, give them the space and the discipline they need to develop. It's based on great books, that's three. And those books are a source of common ground between people of different walks of life, different nations and cultures. And lastly, that it's person to person. We haven't talked so much maybe about that in this chat, but I do think it's crucial that education be between people who know each other. So if you think about learning karate, you're not going to learn karate from watching YouTube videos very well. You find a teacher who's going to look at what you're doing and give you feedback and encouragement and criticism, provide a model for you to watch so that you can see what it looks like. That's going to be how you learn karate or piano. And there's no reason why the most important skills for navigating life, all of our reading, writing, thinking, critical thinking, et cetera, skills, why we should learn those any other way through through the habits of mind and the habits of the heart that that you learn from your teachers, from a personal connection with your teachers. So I, I, I honestly think sometimes I'm asked if I could make one change to educational institutions now, what would I do? And it would be reduce the class size. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just allow those students to have personal contact with their teacher and receive mentoring one-on-one from that teacher. And that I think would make an unbelievable amount of difference in the, our institutions. Want to jump into that book, Lost in Thought? And we've talked about the value of education for human flourishing. We've also talked about the value of education in, in a democracy or in a republic of free people. But say a little bit about learning for its own sake. And, and your book brings to mind the, the classic by Joseph Pieper, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, which seems to have made an argue, a similar argument some years ago. So say a little bit about Lost in Thought. It's been a wildly successful book and the value of learning for its own sake. So in Lost in Thought, I do just what you said. I describe learning as 
valuable for its own sake as something that we do as a culmination of our lives, uh, not as just a means to an end. I look at the impact that learning for its own sake has had on the lives of various people from various walks of life, prisoners, people from the working classes, people who are victims of totalitarianism or of in various circumstances of, of pretty extreme oppression and how learning is a refuge for them. That's really the first part of the book is just a kind of account of learning for its own sake and how beautiful it can be and what kind of ideal it is. In the second part, I look at some of the questions you might have about that. I mean, you, you know, it seems like often very educated people are jerks. How does that happen? How does competition change intellectual life? What's the connection between intellectual life and, and service and community and political life? Is it just something useless? Are you we locked in ivory towers or does it really matter? So that's my book, Lost in Thought. Please check it out. Sounds wonderful. And, and it brings to mind, and I want to probe on this a little bit, the, the connection in both the Christian East and the Christian West between the contemplative life. And we talk in the West about developing contemplation, cultivating a hermitage of the soul. In the East, all Christians, not just the monks, are supposed to cultivate a life of monastic contemplation. So thinking about the fundamental questions, who we are, why we are here, God in his mysteries, uh, this the triune God, this fantastic mystery of our faith. These are things that are not just, again, for a limited num number of people, but it's something that we're all called to. And it seems to me that there's a connection between sense of education in a utilitarian sense and a disdain for contemplative religious life. Do you see a, a connection there at all? Oh, sure, of course. Because it's, again, it's this, the managerial instinct it's very connected to our tendency to workaholism, which I think is pretty literal. You know, I say as a work addict, there is something called work addiction. It really does plague us. The sense that we always have to be busy, we always have to be productive, we always have to be meeting certain metrics. We all know, really, it's not a healthy way of being. And we need to figure out what those moments are in life where we're doing something where it seems like our life is culminating. Now, contemplation can be taken, you know, in the traditional sense where it's prayer, it's unity with God in the moment, it's praise of God, it's talking about the wonders of God. Uh, it can also be something concrete. You're, you're sitting with your family on a, a Sunday afternoon and just the time is just going by and you realize how precious it is to be present with these people. That's a type of contemplation too, or thinking and studying you know, looking at birds or the things of nature, reading great novels and wondering about the way things work. These are all things in which our life culminates in some way. And I think that contemplation, reflection, in a certain way, it's negative. Anything that pulls us out of that world of, of hectic results-driven work and management, which is honestly not really what's most real. Uh, and I think we can forget that. Even all the major disciplines, uh, whether it's uh, Gregor Mendel studying genetics or Galileo studying the stars or even Aristotle doing his science, these are all uh, ways in which people were contemplating the, the order of creation, this uh, beautiful providentially ordered uh, world that we live in, ordered by the logos, right. the the word. And so even the disciplines in themselves are are in some ways, contemplation. And 
consideration of the way in which the fabric of creation is ordered. And so we can even turn the, the practical disciplines as so many see them today, and, and really in their heart that what they are is a desire to know and understand the world that God's created. I think that's right. And I think another way of putting the, the question about whether education should be practical or, or uh, contemplative in the way I'm suggesting is, well, don't you have to be based in truth and reality in order to really do anything effectively? And truth and reality, they have an order. There's big truths and there's little truths, but you've got to be in touch with your own desire for truth and your own desire for contact with reality if you're ever going to be really practical. That is, bring something to the world that that is truly helpful and truly good and truly gives honor, dignity to people and, and honor to God. The pursuit of truth is the very ground of education. Zena, before you go, we're grateful for the time you spent with us today, but what are your three favorite great books? And you don't have to explain why. My favorite great books are Augustine's Confessions, the Book of Genesis, and Plato's Republic. Those are three excellent, wonderful yeah. books and uh, where we can contemplate uh, important truths. So Professor Zena Hitz from St. John's College, thanks so much for being on the Bridge Builder today. Where can people go to find more of your writings and lectures and your book, Lost in Thought? So I have a website, that's zenahitz.net. You can also, if you want to go to sjc.edu to learn more about St. John's College. And lastly, if you're interested in this type of learning, but are not at a stage of life or a place where you can easily go into an educational program, I also run a nonprofit called CatherineProject.org, where we run reading groups and little groups for people who are non-traditional learners, um, and, and feel free to join us there. CatherineProject.org. Sounds wonderful. Professor Zena Hitz, thanks for joining us on The Bridge Builder today. Uh, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. A blessing. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder. It's time for what we used to call our mailbag segment, but now it's this week's action item. Kit, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, so in order to really start building that bridge between faith and politics, we are focusing on respect life beyond the month of respect life month which was in october we really want to encourage our listeners to continue to keep life issues at the forefront it's not just a one month kind of thing so whether it's forming your conscience on the issues and learning what the church teaches or becoming more informed on particular issues that are impacting life, or maybe it's actually then advocating for that transformation in our state. So this week's action item is going to focus on how to start informing you on a particular issue. You can join in a webinar that is hosted by our partner organization, the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare. That webinar is coming up on Thursday, November 18th. It's at noon, kind of a lunchtime, noon hour, quick webinar. And the speaker for this webinar is Charles Camacy. That name might be familiar to some of our longtime podcast listeners. We spoke with him uh, back in August of 2019. So it's been a little while, but it was a really great conversation if you want to listen back. His talk on November 18th at noon will be formed around the topics that is covered in his new book, which is entitled 
losing our dignity, how secularized medicine is undermining fundamental human equality. So you can register for that webinar by visiting ethicalcaremn.org forward slash webinars. We'll have that link on our podcast page as well. Again, that's at noon on Thursday, November 18th. And it's only probably about an hour, so you can even enjoy it while you have your lunch. Again, ethicalcaremn.org forward slash webinars to register. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks everyone for tuning in today. If you're listening on the radio, make sure to catch us on your favorite podcast app. Just search for the Minnesota Catholic Conference or on our YouTube channel for our extended conversations. We can't always fit everything into just a half hour. So when you're there, make sure to click subscribe and then you'll be notified of all our latest episodes. Leave us a comment or question or send an email to show at mncatholic.org. And you can always catch any of our past episodes by going to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. We'll be back again next week with another great guest and more of your comments and questions and another way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins and for Kitsipiniac of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Thanks for listening and have a pleasant day.